Thank you for coming forward one more time this week. And uh, we get to light another one of our Advent candles. This is quite exciting because it means that we have now reached our third candle for the season of Advent. And that means when we get to light this last one next week, Christmas will almost be here. We just have this last pink candle to light, and that will be the end of our Advent time together. But you guys have been so good, and I appreciate uh, you're paying attention this time. Now, I just want to review. We've been talking about different elements of the Christmas season these past few weeks. The first week, when we lit our first candle, we talked about how Jesus was placed in a manger. Does anybody remember what I brought along as a visual illustration of that? Yes? A dog bowl. Very good. Yes, that's exactly what we brought. And then last week, we talked a little bit about the shepherds. And we said how after they had heard this wonderful announcement, their job was to go and to tell everybody that they knew about what they had heard and seen. And so I gave you guys uh, something to take with you. What did I give you? Does anybody remember? Candy cane, that's right. And with that candy cane, there was a message to kind of help you explain what Jesus did when he came, giving you some symbolism of what the different stripes stood for and the shapes and all that. So that's what we talked about last week. Now we're in week three. And I want to do a different part of the story. I'm going to get my Bible here. almost forgot that. Don't want to forget that as we tell the Christmas story. We're going to read from Luke chapter 2 once again. It's going to be the familiar passage we read last time. Listen to this, and then we'll get into our visual illustration. Verse 8 of Luke chapter 2 says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I will bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now I'll stop right there. That's the important part. It says right there that in this this day a Savior has been born. Okay? And that's the key part. What was that Savior like? That's what we're going to answer with this visual illustration. And to help me, I need somebody to come up here as a volunteer. Could I have somebody come up as a volunteer? Micah, would you come up? Um, There's so many of you. I wish we could have all of you. You you, uh, come and stand over here. And I've got my illustration here in the box, okay? Now, you guys are wondering, what's in the box? Jesus is our Savior, okay? And uh, this visual illustration I want to talk about is... Uh, related to that. I'll explain how in a bit. Um, For now, I want you to pretend, imagine you were a superhero. Okay, think in your head who your favorite superhero is. Do you have one in your head who you'd like to to be? Okay, when you think about superheroes, what kind of superpowers do superheroes have? Caleb? They They have a lightsaber. Okay, if you're looking forward to Star Wars this week, okay, you've got a lightsaber. Yes. Super speed, okay. The Force, okay, yeah, you got that. Spider-Man, you like Spider-Man a lot. Okay, he can climb walls, right? You got super strength. All right, so as we're talking about all these, I want to make Micah here into our ultimate superhero. Okay, let's say if you were a superhero, you had uh, super, super strength and super ability to take a punch here. Okay, so here's your armor. Okay, I want you to put on your armor. All right, can you put that over your head? There you go, there's your armor. Um, I... Okay, that, that's, that's close, right? Okay, let's see if we can get, get that, your arms in there a bit. Or maybe I, put, maybe I put your arm through the head thing. I don't know. 
Close enough. Okay, we'll just stick with that. All right. Um, super speed. Okay, we talked about that a little bit. Uh, I don't have any like running shoes for you. I do have moon shoes, so let's pretend you have a uh, super jumping ability. So maybe you could try and stand on that. You don't have to strap them in. Why don't you put your feet right on there? Okay, so let's say you could you could jump really high. Can you do that? No. I don't know how good your balance is. Uh, let's say you were uh, Batman. We've got a utility belt. Nobody, uh, you know, is a superhero without a, a utility belt. So we'll put this around you here. Okay, and and tie that really good so you have all your gadgets. All right, uh, aside from that, um, let's see here. You need super strength, so we'll give you a, a Hulk fist right there. Somebody mentioned uh, Star Wars, so here you go. Here's your lightsaber. has to have a good weapon. We, we want you to be able to fly, right? Flying is another important aspect of being a, a superhero. So I have a cape uh, right here. I couldn't find my Superman cape. Looks like we'll have to deal with a Batman one, so we'll just put this around you. Now you can fly, okay? And also, oh, uh, uh, Superman has uh, laser vision, right, or x-ray vision, so, t so we have some special glasses here for you. You can, you can thank Amy for that. Okay, there you go. Uh, so now we have our ultimate superhero. What do you think? Okay, everybody? Now, if you had all these powers, if you had super strength, you could jump over buildings, you had laser vision, what would you do? What would you do with all your powers? <laughs> He's not sure. Um, I would help people. You would help people. All right, let's give him a round of applause for that. He said help, help people. Okay, I thought you were going to say something like go smash some buildings or something. Good job. You can go and have a seat. You can give those back. Okay, and that is actually that actually fits really well because you know, for all these super abilities that we gave Micah, Jesus is the most powerful person that ever lived. More powerful than any superhero that you could think of. And what I was going to tell you this morning is that despite all of these powers and things that he, he had and could have done with all these superpowers that Jesus had, he had the ability to, to know the future. He was stronger, more powerful than anybody who ever lived. What did Jesus do with those powers? He did exactly what Micah said. He helped people. He raised the dead. He fed the 5,000. He healed the sick. And so Jesus is our Savior. We talked about how humble Jesus was being born in a manger, but we also have a powerful Savior who used that ability, the fact that he was God, to help people when he came to earth. Hey, that was a message. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Micah, for helping me. You guys can go back to your seat. Pastor Heller said that uh, we look at very familiar passages, but uh, we want to uh, have a fresh view of, of Christmas. And uh, I trust we will this morning. In fact, uh, I have preached, because we have Advent four weeks, I have preached over 130 Christmas messages. And, uh, you know, you get to think you know a passage pretty well. But as I was studying this passage, I saw some things uh, anew and afresh. And I hope that it will prove to be of value to you. We are in Luke chapter 2 this morning. And we're looking at this, this narrative. Luke chapter 2 has the angelic message in verses 9 through 11. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear, referring to the shepherds. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good, no good news of great joy, which shall be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And then the angelic proof of that message. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. I spoke concerning that two weeks ago. We emphasized that this 
His being found in a manger was a sign in three ways. It was a sign that he was the right child. You will know that you found the right child. He's going to be the one lying in a manger. It was a sign that the message concerning the child would be true, that because you saw him in a manger, you know the rest of that message is true, that he is going to be a savior. And it was a sign regarding what the message meant. This baby lying in a manger would one day be that child that would grow and say, the foxes have holes, the birds of the airs have nests, but the Son of Man has not anywhere to lay his head. And today we look at the angelic interpretation of the significance of this statement. Luke 2, 13 and 14. And suddenly, that is unexpectedly, uh, out of the ordinary, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Now the angelic interpretation of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ was twofold. First, that it brought glory to God in the highest places. In the highest places, in the most exalted realms. In heaven itself, the babe lying in a manger was a cause for rejoicing and for glory. It was beautiful. It was marvelous. It was a cause for praise to Almighty God that this babe is lying in a manger. So why was the babe lying in a manger such a glorious event? We need to think a moment about God's glory. In the Old Testament, Moses had requested to see God's glory. Exodus 33:18. Moses said, "Please show me your glory." God gave Moses a small glimpse of his glory. And the Lord said, "Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock." And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. So what did Moses see when God showed Moses God's glory? God showed Moses his grace, willingness to forgive, and also his justice. In Exodus 34, 6, it says, The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord... The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And then, and who will by no means clear the guilty, and it goes on, and I'm going to deal with the second part of that next week. But the first part of seeing God's glory was that he forgave iniquity and transgression for sin. In the New Testament, it tells us that Jesus came to reveal God's glory. And in John 1.14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
and we beheld his glory. That is God's glory. We saw God's glory, full of grace and truth. That's God's glory. That he's filled with grace, and at the same time, he's filled with truth. And at the same time he's filled with truth, he's filled with grace. We'll look at the truth aspect again next week. Today, we look at this gracious aspect. But what I want to convey to you this morning is that God's grace is truly glorious. Don't ever mistake humility and graciousness for weakness. It is not cowardly, it is not cowardice, it is not shameful, it is glorious in the way in which Jesus will conduct himself. Perhaps you've heard the adage that absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's only because mankind is sinful. You give mankind the opportunity to have absolute power to do whatever they want to do, and they're going to become ruthless. They're going to be unchecked. But God, who has absolute power, became a man, and in that humanity, he was not corrupted, but he was gracious. God in absolute power becomes gracious. When a person of power uses their power to help the weak, that is glorious. When a person of power can easily destroy his enemies, but instead extends to them peace and forgiveness, that is glorious. That is commendable. Greatness is manifested in a person of high degree willing to sacrifice for the sake of a person of low degree. Of a master taking on the role of a servant. For the Son of God to take on the form of a baby lying in a manger is glorious. The creator of the heavens and earth relying upon human parents is glorious. The sovereign, almighty ruler of heaven and earth becoming a helpless baby is glorious. It's mind-boggling. It's like what no one else would do. In the heavenly realm, when they worshipped and understood the Trinity, in the heavenly realm, when the Son of God came to this earth and was born of a virgin and was placed in a Manger, this stinky, cruddy manger. The host of heaven said, Glory to God! How remarkable! How wonderful! How praiseworthy that God would use his power, his might, his ability in this way. And then secondly, and this is where we're going to camp out this morning. Secondly, the angels interpret the message of the Savior's birth as a declaration of peace to men. Verse 14. 
Glory to God in the highest. And now these words, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased, or as the King James translates it, on earth peace, goodwill toward men. To really get at the heart of the significance of verses 13 and 14, we need to correct some very common misconceptions, almost universal misconceptions regarding this passage. We've been talking a little bit about Christmas carols, and sometimes they are not the most helpful in understanding the true nature of the Christmas narrative. The first misconception that I would like to point out to you is that this multitude of angels that appear to the shepherd was not a heavenly choir. Let me say that again. They were not a heavenly choir. Notice verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. And whatever translation you are using translates it as host. Not one says choir, because it wasn't a choir. It was a host. Now, what in the world is a host? It's an army. It's an army. This was a heavenly army that appeared to the shepherds. Now, picture that. This was a heavenly army of angels that appeared to the shepherds. The scripture tells us that there, there was a multitude of them. The skies were filled with, these, with this army of angels. Can you imagine? The shepherds were afraid when one angel appeared. King James, they were sore afraid. They were shaking in their boots when one angel appeared. And then there's this announcement that a baby's going to be born, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, poof, the sky is filled with a heavenly army. Now, that's scary. That's scary. And this multitude, it says, of the heavenly army, which that genitive means it's a part. So, As big as this army was, it wasn't the entire army of heaven. Heaven's army was bigger than what showed up that day. But what showed up that day was huge. Was huge. Now, why is that significant? To understand that it is this army that's praising God and saying, what's going on in heaven? Glory to God in the highest. And what's going on on earth? Peace. Goodwill toward men. This heavenly army is announcing that Jesus came in peace. That this deliverer, this savior, this one that Israel had longed for so long was coming to the world in peace. That is not 
what Israel was anticipating. They were looking for a military leader. They were looking for a political deliverer. They were looking for someone that would set all the ills right. And this army shows up to announce that Jesus came in peace. The second misconception, which goes right along with the, with the choir, is that they were singing. The passage says, they said. They said. Because it's a proclamation. It's an announcement. It's not a singing telegram. It's a statement that Jesus has come in peace. Now we've got to deal with this translation issue. ESV says, Glory to God in the highest on earth, earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased, with whom he is pleased. NAS, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. NIV, uh, men on whom his favor rests. Still others translate this as on earth peace among men of goodwill. And then the King James, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. I think one of the reasons for the issues of the divergence of translation, well, I believe there are two reasons. First, the difficulty of explaining in what sense peace has arrived. You look at this world and you say, peace? Where's their peace? Right? And you know, uh, the old familiar carols say, uh, the hate is strong and mocks the song on peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Where is this peace? Okay? So the translators have to wrestle with what is meant when it says that peace has come. And so it's become very popular to say, well, it's peace among those of goodwill. Those uh, people upon whom God's favor rests, God is going to create peace in their hearts, or God is going to bring about this peace, or, or what have you. Um, I don't think we need to introduce election here. This is a statement about good news for everyone. That, that uh, I bring you good tidings of great joy for all people. A Savior is born. The Savior is born is not bad news for anybody. Including those that don't believe. Now think about that. The message that a Savior is born is good news for everybody. Even those that don't believe. Why? Because this Deliverer has come in peace. Because the deliverance he's going to bring, he's going to bring peacefully. He is not going to harm a single soul. No one is going to be injured by the coming of Jesus. Jesus is going to be a peaceful deliverer. Think about it. Not one human being loses their life as a result of Jesus establishing his kingdom. Jesus does not destroy anyone. The reason being, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, 
that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And now these words, for God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him would be saved. Condemnation is coming later. Judgment is coming later. Justice is coming later. He didn't send Jesus into the world to bring about this transformation of a kingdom, a rule of justice. That's going to happen when Christ returns. I will deal with that next week. Now, he came not to condemn, but to give life. Jesus killed no one. He did not put a single enemy to death. Even those who were out to kill him or others. When the baby Jesus was less than two years old, Herod the king wanted to kill Jesus. Remember an angel appears to Joseph, warns them of the fact that Herod is going to seek to kill Jesus. And so as a result, Joseph and Mary and the baby flee to Egypt. And Herod has all the babies in the region that are two years old and younger killed. Jesus, nor God the Father, strikes Herod dead as a result of that incident. He continues to live. When Jesus was being crucified, he did not seek the life of his enemies. Instead, as Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And when he was offering up that prayer, he was not praying for their eschatological salvation. He wasn't praying that today may they be with me in paradise. He was interceding, he was intervening for everyone that was putting him to death. Don't hold that against them and strike them dead. Forgive them. Don't hold them to account. For this, Remember in the Old Testament when they were transporting the uh, Ark of the Covenant when it, when it was the uh, animal stumbled and the Ark of the Covenant was going to uh, fall Uzziah just raised up his hand touched that Ark and it was instant death. First John says that we have touched we have handled the Son of God. They put Nails in his hands. They hung him on a cross. They mocked him. And not one person died. Not one person lost their life. They came in a garden at night to arrest Jesus. I want us to look at that passage. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verse 48. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's prayed all night long. Judas is out to betray him. Judas returns. Matthew chapter 26, starting at verse 48. Now the betrayer, that is Judas, had given them, that's the army, a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. So he's going to point out Jesus. And the way that he's going to identify Jesus is he's going to kiss him on the cheek. That's how you know 
who Jesus is, okay? A dastardly way. But he's going to try to feign that, you know, he loves Jesus and betray him with a kiss. And he came to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know that that was Peter. But notice the next statement. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back. Put your sword away, Peter. We are not going to fight this army. We are not going to resist this arrest. We're not going there. And he doesn't say this out of weakness. He doesn't say this because this army is too big. He doesn't say it because we don't have a chance. Notice what he says. Verse 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Don't you think that I can't call upon God for the heavenly army? The very heavenly army that came proclaiming peace to this earth. He said, don't you think I can call the heavenly army and just wipe out this puny handful of soldiers? But that's not what Jesus was about. The soldiers were powerless against Christ. Verse 55, at that hour Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. Day after day, I was in your presence. I wasn't arrested. I was saying all these things that you despised. Nothing happened to me. Think about that. Why not? Because my Heavenly Father was protecting me. My Heavenly Father was watching over me. You could do nothing to me. And now you're coming out with clubs, and you're arresting me. You really think those clubs mean anything? You think those clubs are going to be able to subdue me, the one who's performed these miracles? Do you think that your puny army has any chance? Verse 56. But all this has taken place. He's saying this. This isn't narrative. This is Jesus' words. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples fled. Jesus harmed no one. Jesus did not come waving a white flag. He wasn't surrendering. Jesus came extending an olive branch. Jesus was offering peace. Jesus was offering an opportunity to be reconciled. Jesus was offering an opportunity to be forgiven. Jesus was coming in order to offer peace with God. You don't have to be his enemy. You don't have to be fighting against me. He offered peace. Jesus went to his death 
peacefully. Verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest. I like that word, led him to Caiaphas, the high priest. I'm a farm boy. There are images in my mind. One of them is leading a cow to get on a truck that's going to be led to slaughter. Now, the cow doesn't know they're going to slaughter, but the cow doesn't want to get on the truck. Okay, there's a ramp. They're scared of the ramp and so on. And you can lead this cow, and you, you see people at the farm show leading a cow and so on, but when a cow doesn't want to go somewhere, it can be pretty tough leading a cow. You know, when they get on this ramp, they, they would just plant all four feet, and they would lean back. That's one image of stiff-necked, stiff-necked, rebellious. You see, they put their head back. And backsliding, that term, okay, a backsliding Christian, these are all farm terms, okay? Because they would get on that ramp, and they would push themselves backwards. They would try to go in the opposite direction. They resisted with all their might. And so you had to get a cattle prod. And you had to force them to go where they wanted to go. Jesus was led to Gethsemane. He was led to Caiaphas. He wasn't stiff-necked. He wasn't rebellious. He didn't fight back. He went to Calvary. That's not weakness. That's glorious. That's amazing. That is fantastic. Jesus came in peace. Application, twofold. First, last week we saw that we're to carry on Jesus' work. We saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that in the place of Jesus, we are to beg people to be reconciled with God. That's what the word is used, beg people. We're not to put a gun to people's head and say, you must believe in Jesus. We beg, we implore people to believe in Jesus. And the way that we do that, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.19, that is in Christ. In Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. Now these words, not counting their trespasses against them. Not counting their trespasses against him. God was not holding sinful man's sin against them. Jesus Christ died to pay for man's sin. Those that are unrepentant, eventually, are going to have to pay for their sin. But he didn't come into this world as a baby to make people pay for their sin. He came in this world to take mankind's sin upon himself. He did not hold anyone's sin against them. Remember when the woman was taken into adultery? And they said, what should happen to this woman? Jesus said, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And then continued writing on the ground. And when everybody left, Jesus said to that woman, who condemns you? No one. 
And he said, neither do I condemn you. He didn't, didn't come into the world to condemn. He didn't come into the world to present, create justice. He will do that when he returns. That isn't what he was about in his first coming. He came in peace to offer an olive branch of peace to all those that would believe in him. We are to be in Christ's stead. We are to beg people to believe in Jesus. In the place of Christ. That's what we looked at last week. And remember I said there was so much more I wanted to say? We are in the place of Christ. Right now, we are begging people to become a part of the kingdom. In order to do that, in order to be like Christ, we must be people of peace. Not holding people's sins against them. Think of the teachings of Jesus. Jesus taught that we are to pray for our enemies. Jesus taught us how to pray for our enemies. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus taught us that when someone smites us on one cheek, what are we to do? Turn the other cheek. The book of Romans teaches us that on our part, we are to live at peace with everyone. Listen to these words. Romans 12, 18. If if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Okay? As far as it depends on you, can't help what somebody else does. You can't be responsible for the way in which somebody else is going to be responding to you. But on your side, You respond in peace. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. That's an absolute statement. Beloved, never avenge yourself. Never take it into your own hands to make someone pay for what they've done to you. Never avenge yourself. You're representing Jesus. You're representing his ministry. You are representing his work. Don't defame Jesus by acting in a way that he would not act. Don't avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That day is coming. I'm going to look at it next week. But we're not there yet. We're living in a period of time in which we're taking a message of peace to this world. Holding out an olive branch. To the contrary, rather than to avenge, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Meaning that you know, all you do is just you make them more guilty. You, you just reveal how evil they are. By doing them good when they do evil to you, you just show that you're entirely different. You're not like them. 
And you're not like the world. Because the world will tell you that you need to defend yourself. Will tell you that you need to kill people before they kill you. The world will tell us that it's right for you to avenge yourself, to get even for the wrongs that you do. Nobody but the church, and less and less the church, will tell you that you're to be a people of peace. The scripture says we conquer evil by doing good. Listen to these words. Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil. Don't let evil win out. Don't let evil take you over. Don't be overcome by evil. Don't let all of the world's influences change who you are. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Conquer evil by doing good. Conquer evil by not being more mean than the people who are mean to you, but conquer evil by being loving and gracious to people who are mean and terrible to you. Jesus did not teach us to take up a sword. In fact, he said to Peter, put your sword away. Jesus taught us to take up a cross. Take up a cross and follow me. Be like me, who is willing to forfeit one's life in order that people would be saved. That's what God has called us to do. That's what Jesus has called us to do. To be willing to forfeit our lives, if necessary. So that others would be saved. To overcome evil by doing good. Jesus came and this incredible angelic army that could have wiped out everyone on the face of this earth, said, Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. The deliverer is coming. But he's not coming to make war. He's coming to make peace. He's offering you an olive branch. And so this morning, my application is twofold. First, Don't mistake grace for weakness. Don't mistake kindness for weakness. Madeline Murray O'Hare, the woman that's responsible for taking the Bible out of the public schools, an atheist, used to love to shock people. She would go out in the middle of a thunderstorm And she would shake and raise her hand towards heaven and say, If there be a God, strike me dead. And she would stand there. And nothing would happen. And then she'd go back in the house, gleefully laugh as all of her partygoers would be kind of shocked and amazed and say, See, there is no God. 
What she failed to see is that there was a gracious God, a loving God, a kind God that allowed her to continue in her mockery and rebellion, but it won't always be that way. Before the judgment comes, there's the offer of peace. And I say to you this morning, if you haven't never, ever received Jesus Christ as your Savior, don't ever, ever, ever confuse grace with weakness. If you have not received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, the only reason you're walking around this very moment is the grace of God. It's not a bunch of garbage. It's not weakness. It's grace that you're alive. God hasn't waved a white flag. He hasn't surrendered. His kingdom is going to be established. And you will not be a part, and you will be punished. That's all next week. But right now is an olive branch. I invite each and every single person this morning, if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your deliverer from sin, understand the glory of Jesus. Understand that he is meek and lowly. Understand that you have reason to put your faith and trust in him, for there is no other deliverer. He did not come to harm. He came to save. So trust in the Lord Jesus this morning. And if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus, understand the kingdom that you're a part of. Understand how different we are from the world. Understand how different our king is. Understand how different our life is to be. And in this sin-sick, ridden world, may we be a peaceful people. Holding out an olive branch Not surrendering, but holding out an olive branch of peace that is willing to die if that's what it takes in order for someone to put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. Overcoming evil with good, not being overcome by evil. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his glory. We thank you, O God, for your glory in sending your Son not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, extending to each and every single human being an olive branch, not holding their sins against them, begging them to trust in the Lord Jesus, who in his grace and mercy allowed himself to be nailed to a cross and not taking vengeance on a single individual. Oh, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted in Jesus as their Savior, may they understand this wonderful Savior that they have who has come to deliver them from heartache and sin and misery and eternal death and damnation and welcomes them into the presence of God through his own death and resurrection. I pray if there's anyone here this morning that you would receive that olive branch, that you would receive that peace that he is offering, that you would be reconciled to God and experience his forgiveness and joy and 
majesty. If there's anyone here this morning that would like to respond to that message of peace and believe in the Lord Jesus, would you quickly raise your hand so I can pray for you? I'm not going to single you out. I'm not going to embarrass you in any way, but I want to know that you have made that commitment this morning. I'm not going to wait. Just raise your hand quickly so I can see it. Anyone at all? Thank you. Anybody else that wants to trust the Lord Jesus Christ? Anyone else? Then let me say to you, as the people of God, help us to be people of peace. Help us to respond differently than the world. We have so many people shouting in our ears a different message. May we understand the Savior that we serve. Help us, O God, to be a people of peace. Help us to represent the Lord Jesus the way that we should. O Lord, help us to take the ministry of reconciliation to this dying world. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.